Acts 18, 1 to 23. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencri he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. We began this series in Acts chapter 16 through 19 with the issue of how we like to be on the winning side. So, you know, historians talk about being on the right side of history and soldiers about, you know, being on the victorious winner of the war and so forth, teachers the best results Businessmen and women, the bottom line, and graphs in blue rather than red. Now, last Sunday evening, I had a real quandary. You know, do you support Wales or Australia? And it was a big kind of moral decision. Uh, and, you know, we got a lot of Australian friends. We love the Australians. There'll be a lot of Australians here this evening. And then there's Wales. 
and we love the Welsh. You know, I've got I've got a grand, great grandfather called Thomas. You know, his surname. You know, and so you know. And, but then the Welsh gloat so badly uh, on the uh, rare occasions when they actually beat us. So, but halfway through the match, you know, as the score moved from single to double figures and then doubled and doubled again, a kind of warm glow came over me and I decided my Welsh roots. You know, I wanted to be on the winning side. Well, now the issue, the issue, um, the issue we've been thinking about then is the triumph of the Christian gospel. And what the author of Acts uh, Dr. Luke, Luke, who wrote Luke's gospel, is wanting us to see is that the Christian gospel really does triumph and prevail mightily across the globe. Now, just a very brief look at history tells you that that is true. Look at chapter 19, verse 20. Turn over one page uh, on the left-hand side of the page there, Acts nineteen twenty. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily could be translated so mightily advanced the word of Jesus and prevailed and so Dr. Luke's point and it's unique to this part of Acts is that um, the rule of Jesus here on earth will advance across the globe kind of whether you like it or not that's going to happen and in fact whether you believe it or not that is going to happen and it happens mightily and triumphantly, as King Jesus is proclaimed into whole new territories that you just wouldn't imagine it ever happening. And, and we've seen that happening. Um, the, the, the Christian message has gone from what we now know as Turkey into Europe, mainland Europe. We've met individuals, municipal centers, Thessalonica, Philippi, Athens last week, the gospel triumphed amongst the intellectual elite. And today we come to the first really big pagan urban center. We're in Corinth. Can the Christian gospel triumph in Corinth? Now, Corinth was a center of around about three-quarters of a million people. That's a really big city in, in the Roman Empire. Massive port, trading center. People came from all over the world. Um, it, it actually had what became a canal, but at that stage, big trading center you could cross from one sea to the next without going round the southern tip of Greece. And in the time of this writing, there was a kind of slipway, and people would drag the cargoes along the slipway from one to the other. So it had everything you expect in a very large urban trading center, a hodgepodge of pagan belief and behavior. Can the rule of Jesus really advance and triumph in a place like this? Paganism was, paganism was rife. Temples aplenty. Sexual services on offer, multiple. Pride was rampant. I mean, there was civic pride. The city was rebuilt in 46 BC by Julius Caesar. So there was a great sense of, you know, Caesar's city, but also... 2,000 feet above sea level, a rocky outcrop, the Acrocorinth, the Temple of Venus or Aphrodite was there, the goddess of love. A 1,000 female slaves served there and roamed the streets as prostitutes at night. So kind of the sexual ethics of Corinth. To Corinthianize was to live, it was a verb, and it became to live a life of sexual immorality, you Corinthianized. If you were known as a Corinthian, it was another name for a prostitute. 
And it struck me, you know, what a week for us. And particularly if you're arriving in London, you know, and you call yourself Christian or you're wondering about the Christian faith, in a place like London, I mean, here in the city of London, there could be few places more like ancient Corinth. Pride, our civic institutions, our uh, public services, banks, schools, hospitals, insurance houses all around us, such power and such kind of counter-Christian morality just everywhere. Can the Christian gospel triumph here in your office, in your school? I want us to see then that the gospel triumphs in these urban centers because of God's eternal plan, because of God's sovereign protection, because of God's people. Okay, I think this is what Luke's wanting to teach us, the eternal plan of God. In a sense, what Luke describes in verses 1 to 11 is nothing new. So the Apostle Paul, verse 4 He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, that's what he's been doing all along. Verse 5, he was occupied with the word. That's what he's been doing all along. When Jesus appears to him in a vision at night, he says, don't be afraid, go on speaking. That's what he's been doing all along. And he stayed a year and six months, verse 11, teaching the word of God among them. Nothing new. The method is the same, both to Jew and non-Jew. He taught the word of God. He spoke. He reasoned. He argued from the scriptures. We've covered this. He ran Christianity Explored. He read the Bible one-to-one with unbelievers. He had his own read, mark, learn program, student night, or whatever it happens to be. You know, He was occupied with the word. The message was the same. Just look at verse 5 there. Uh, Sorry, verse, yes, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, God's eternal king, his anointed Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, was Jesus of Nazareth. So the message is the same. And the word occupied is a wonderful word. It could equally be translated constrained with, absorbed with, urgent about. And so Paul was thinking about what he was going to teach in the word. He was considering ways in which the teaching of the word King Jesus could be put forward. He was an entrepreneur with the message of the rule of King Jesus. He dreamed about sharing the word of Jesus, and he did it. And so verse 11... He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The great uh, Bible teacher from the mid-20th and late 20th century has this to say, John Stott, for the word of God is the divinely appointed means by which people come to put their trust in Christ and so identify themselves as his. Nothing new. And yet... Paul's statement in verse 6 is new, and Jesus' appearance in verse 9 is new. His statement is a direct allusion to the teaching of Jesus and a direct quote from the Old Testament. So you may remember Jesus told his apostles to shake the dust off their feet if a town refused to accept them and move on. As if to say, though the gospel appeal 
remains open to you. You can still come to Jesus to receive forgiveness and surrender to him. That's still open. But if you continue to reject, I'm done with you. And the prophet Ezekiel was told by God to speak the message of God's judgment, to call people to be rescued by God. But if the people of God did not receive that message, then the blood was on their head. And so verse 6 is new. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the nation's. And I suppose you might say then, in other words, you know, you will face God's judgment. And as you face God's judgment, you have no one to blame but yourself. It's your own responsibility. I've warned you again and again and again and again. And if you continue to reject King Jesus, then no one can help you. In, in passing, as an aside, I think there is a real warning here for us. You know, there'll be many coming from homes and families arriving in London where they've heard the Christian gospel, that God's king has been installed as God's ruler for all eternity. His name is Jesus. He is God's Lord and judge of all humanity. But they determine to reject and refuse him. Your blood be on your own head. So verse 6 is new. Verses 9 and 10 are also new. And um, Jesus only appears like this at key moments in the book of Acts. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And it's that sentence, I have many in this city who are my people, that is so key. To be God's people is the great offer of God all the way through the Bible. This is what God is holding out to us, that we can call ourselves one of God's very own people. Listen to this promise. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be to me a treasured possession and a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the Jews refused to accept Jesus. Paul from the reading, moves next door to the house of Titius Justus. Crispus, great names, the synagogue ruler, is converted. That must have infuriated the Jews in the synagogue. But now Titius Justus has accepted Paul, and then many of the Corinthians get baptized. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. I've got many in this city who are my people. And he's in Corinth. This, if you like, is Jesus confirming his eternal plan that we've been thinking about all evening. All evening we've been talking about Genesis 12, 15, 17, Exodus 19, Psalm 2, the kings of the earth taking refuge in God's king. Psalm 72, the nations of the earth coming to God's king who's enthroned. Revelation chapter 5, the Lord Jesus purchasing a people from all the nations and the tribes. And here we are in a pagan urban center, the last place in the world you might expect the Christian gospel to take hold. And here is Jesus in one of these unique appearances to the Apostle Paul. I've got many who are my people. 
Now, I don't know about you, but does this not, you know, Jesus doesn't have to appear in every age to every one of us who is Christian to make the point that he makes here. The point is that even in these vast urban centers with all their godlessness, God's plan is kind of unstoppably like a great tsunami, waves rolling in and crashing on the beach. You cannot prevent it. And even here in Corinth, there are people who belong to the Lord Jesus. All the promises of the Bible point to that. And for those who, having heard the gospel, insist on rejecting it, in spite of all their privileges, your blood be on your own head. But there will be people, their treasure possession. So I think that's a general point. And doesn't it encourage you? I hope it encourages really encourages me. Here I am stuck in one of those pagan cities in the world, so like Corinth, to stay here and to keep working here because God has got many people across the whole globe. That's part of his eternal plan. And there will be many such people here in London. Can you believe it? You couldn't have believed it in Corinth. It was true. And so I say that's a general point, but I just think as a personal application, for me, I think, you know, for some of us old sweats, I'm sorry to use that term of myself and possibly you, I don't know, but uh, some of us, you know, who've been knocking around a bit longer, maybe five years at St. Helens or something like that, you're thinking, well, is it time, you know, to move on or whatever? Well, no, no, you you begin to think, oh, is there anybody left who's going to come to the Lord Jesus? There are many people. And also, as a kind of a little tangential another side for us you know i think this idea of being one of his people in a vast urban center i've thought a lot about this over the last few weeks how isolating london how lonely a big city can be how very very alone you can feel in a crowd in london and yet you can be one of his people a treasure possession a royal child. It's rather a wonderful thought, actually, that if you trust Jesus, you are never, ever alone. You're always on the winning side. So God has a plan, and that plan is rolling forward, and you're not going to stop it, and here we are in Corinth, the least likely of places, and God has a people. But then God's sovereign protection. Now, we have to be careful as we look at verses 12 through 17, multiple occasions where God's sovereign protection is not extended, both in the Bible as a whole and in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, when the persecution came down on Jerusalem, the believers were scattered. In Acts 12, James, James was martyred. Acts 7, so was Stephen. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul was driven from Antioch, Iconium, Lystra to Derbe and on and on and on. In our own section, Philippi and Thessalonica, Paul has been persecuted and stoned and driven out. So not always this protection, but every, and usually he's driven in order that the gospel might advance. But from time to time, there are these moments of extraordinary sovereign protection. Isn't it interesting how it comes here through the pagan governing ruler? Gallio, another great name. Here in Corinth, the, 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 uh, it's, the, it's the correct technical term. The proconsul was a man called Gallio. He was the son of Seneca and the younger brother of 
Seneca, Seneca named after his father, Seneca. And Seneca, his brother, was a philosopher and an author. And Gallio was proconsul of Corinth from 51 AD, in 51 AD, and he had to resign due to ill health in 50 AD. So it's a very tight period of six months that we're talking about here. Look at his hand in the events. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, probably the law of Rome. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about your words and about words and names and your own law, See to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove the Jews out from the tribunal. They all seized poor old Sosthenes, who had now become the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him for good measure in front of the tribunal. But Gallio washed his hands of the whole thing. Now, why did Gallio do that? We don't really know. Was it just a bad day and he was a bit busy and he just couldn't be bothered? And so he said, well, it sounds like it's just a little religious squabble. Off you go and sort it out. Or had he actually done the research, done his homework, realized that actually the Christian faith is not a threat Paul wasn't doing anything illegal and uh, that it's perfectly all right for the God. We just don't know. I think the former is likely, given that when it comes to the mob seizing Sosthenes, he does nothing about it. But this idea that kind of governing authorities can provide an environment, even though they themselves may have nothing to do with the Christian faith, that is favorable to the advance of the Christian faith. It's not new in the Bible, is it? Joseph in Pharaoh's court, Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Ezra in the time of Cyrus, king of Persia, Esther in the realm of Hazarus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia. They all created moments where the gospel could advance radically. So we've got God's sovereign plan that he's working out the rolling waves. You'll never stop it. Jesus' rule will advance across the whole world. And here we are in the pagan city. But then we've got this extraordinary kind of moment that the Lord Jesus gives of sovereign protection. And I think we should be open and aware to that, aware of that. A, a friend of mine is a pastor in a country that has historically been acutely hostile to the Christian gospel, where pastors are arrested, churches have been shut down and raised from the ground. He came to this country a number of years ago, about a decade ago now, and we had dinner in our home. It was one of the most memorable evenings of my life. My predecessor, Dick Lucas, still alive, lives next door to me, 98 now. He was around about 90, something like that then, back then. Had always had a great interest in the advance of the rule of Jesus in this particular country. So he came to dinner, as did one or two others. And there we were listening to this senior pastor of a church being translated as we sat and had dinner together. It was electric, hairs on the back of the neck stuff. This friend had had a call from the secret police. He'd been told that the government wanted to speak to him. He was told when he would be picked up. He was picked up. He was taken to an airport. He, w- he was flown to another, obviously, airport. 
He got out of the plane. There were secret police waiting. He was blindfolded. He was put in the back of the car. He was driven to he knew not where. He hadn't got a clue where he was in this country. And he was there in a cell for inside of a week. And he was taken out and taken to the next place, interviewed, next place, interviewed, next place, interviewed. Anyway, it transpired the government were trying to find out whether the Christian gospel was a threat. It was a new regime. And my friend was a senior guy, and they were actually trying to find out. He returned home. You can hold Christian meetings. He he was summoned, and still is today, repeatedly to help the government work out how to interact with the Christians. And when a building came up for a church, he led one of the biggest churches in that particular city, the government allowed him to take out a long lease on it. And there they are preaching the gospel in the middle of one of the most hostile cities in the world, one of the biggest cities in the world, because a window has been opened. Thrilling, isn't it? And I think it's possible to miss this kind of thing in Acts. You know, yeah, the gospel advances in pagan, these most extraordinary places. Yeah, because Jesus has a plan. You're not going to stop it. It's there from the start of the Bible right to the end. You want to be on the winning side, surrender to Jesus, and you will be one of his people, a royal child the most privileged person in London, alongside the rest of us. But also, from time to time, God opens a window like this. Now, sometimes there's persecution, and that drives the gospel forward because people get scattered and the gospel gets heard about because people are locked up and people want to know why. And So that can be good for the gospel, but sometimes you just I just wonder whether we aren't in such a window in Britain today. All the language of inclusion and diversity. Actually, kids in schools from St. Helens, you know, there are 59 uh, late teenagers meeting to study the Bible on a Wednesday evening. By the way, they need more leaders. So if you're wondering what to do on a Wednesday evening, come and help lead in the youth group. 59 of them. But they are starting Christian unions themselves in their schools And when summoned by the head teacher, as one of them was, what is this you're doing? They cite diversity and inclusion. Isn't that thrilling? Is there not a window open for us? And the world is at our doorstep because the world comes to London. And then finally, we've got a couple of minutes for this, but this is so exciting as a result of his godly people. Now, I've been holding back on this till we get to this passage because we've seen this before, but I've deliberately not commented on it. But you will see there are multiple individuals through this section who are engaged in the advance of the gospel rule of Jesus at great personal cost. In Thessalonica, do you remember Jason? He, the lynch mob dragged him out of his house. In our passage, we got... Aquila and Priscilla. So verses 1 and 2. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, these guys are Christians. Actually, the historian, the Roman historian Suetonius, writes about that persecution. It's likely the 49 AD persecution. And he says, as a result of the disturbance caused by Crestus, Claudius forced 
the Jews, including the Christians, out of Rome. Interesting, that, isn't it? But look at how Priscilla and Aquila give themselves. Okay, they were in Rome. They were obviously engaged in the work of the gospel. They were driven out of Rome because they were engaged in the work of the gospel. They find themselves here in Corinth. What do they do? They get engaged in the work of the gospel. Oh, they're tent makers. And so that's an easily, you know, it's like working at McDonald's or something like that. It's a nice, easy, you know, um, transportable calling, you might say, vocation. And, you know, they're shelf stackers. And so they get on with shel- stacking shelves. But they invite Paul into their small business so that he can get engaged and he's got something to eat. And here they are, gospel supporters. That could be you, couldn't it? Wherever you find yourself in the world, I mean, it's, uh, we had the wedding. I saw Rich de Villiers, Rich and Jenny, are here somewhere, aren't they? Rich has been knocking around. He's not quite an old sweat, but he's been here for a while, haven't you, Rich? Is it 14 years, or is it not that long? Anyway, it's a long time, and it's been wonderful. It feels like it's just been a second. But um, at his wedding, it was great, because we had generations of St. Helens people come back, and they're scattered all over the place. People from Scotland, can you believe that? All the way up there, and then there were people from Devon, and all of them, you go up to them, what are you up to? Are there, wherever they've landed doing the work of Priscilla and Aquila. That's how the gospel advances. And then there's, uh, well, in verse 5, it's slightly hidden here, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and from then Paul was occupied with the word. Most likely they brought money from Thessalonica and Philippi in Macedonia. So there were those Christians over there who were giving so that other people could preach the gospel. That could be you. I hope it is. And then there's Silas and Timothy. And Silas, well, he came from Jerusalem and up to Antioch, and that's where Paul took him under his wing. And he dropped everything and just joined Paul on what you might call Paul's associate scheme as he trained gospel workers. And Timothy was exactly the same. He was uh, there in Derby, wasn't he? Not our Derby, obviously, the one in <laughs> south-central Turkey at the time. And, um, and, and Timothy joined the Apostle Paul and got trained up and became one of the most effective, powerful gospel workers in the whole of the New Testament. That could be you. And then there's Titius Justus, Crispus, and Jason, who willingly used their houses as a base for Christian ministry, displaying extraordinary courage and commitment. I remember one of our earliest church plants from here went out amidst fierce opposition. And a couple bought a house in the area, and the church effectively met in their house for the first six months to a year of its life. And the couple, you know, they had to strip all the furniture out as it grew and it got bigger. Every room was used. Think of cleaning the place when it, you know, Crispus and Justice and Jason. Could be you. So how does the gospel, it will take hold, it advances. Yeah, God has a plan. It does it because of God's glorious plan. You're never going to be on the losing side. Yeah. Occasionally, God gives us this wonderful window. I think we've got one here in London, have we? Has anybody been locked up or lynch mobbed recently for preaching the gospel? No, no. You've got diversity and inclusion in your office. You've got a window here. And then through people. Back to Wales and Australia. J. 
Jack Morgan and Gareth Anscombe. You know, they're, they, they're legends. I mean, their names are going to be plastered on, you know, they did the stuff and took the sword right into the heart of those lovely, dear, beloved Australian friends of ours who were thrashed. And it was glorious. But, you know, it's just a game of rugby. It's just keep kicking a piece of leather ball around a field. I mean, for goodness sake, what's the deal with that? You're not going to be singing about that. Well, well, she probably will. But you know what I mean? It's not that exciting. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is eternity. This is forever. This is God's master plan. And isn't it extraordinary? It's never going to stop. You'll always be on the winning side. God's given a window. It happens. Well, as the word is proclaimed, and as people like you and me get involved, and, well, to be his treasured possession, who is, if you like, on the roll call for eternity, somebody who played a part in it. I mean, what a thing. Let's pray. The Christ is Jesus. We praise you, our Father, that you have enthroned King Jesus for all eternity as a result of his selfless, sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. We thank you that you are gathering a people who are your treasured possession, that if we belong to the Lord Jesus, we are yours. You love us. And we're never alone. We thank you for the reminder that you have this people all over the world and all over London. We thank you for the times in which we live and we pray that we might, like these other individuals, give ourselves to this glorious work. In Jesus' name, amen.